I'm Rachel McTavish and welcome to episode three of AC Life, the podcast. Today we're joined by Fergus Crawley, mental health advocate and hybrid athlete who also hosts his own podcast, The Modern Mind. Fergus is known for taking on extreme challenges, pushing his body to the limit as a hybrid athlete. In fact, he's just completed a double Ironman challenge. He's also well known, though, for talking about his mental health and the journey he's been on over the past decade. Fergus, thanks very much for joining us. As we can hear from that introduction, you're such a dynamic, positive person and thousands of your subscribers have really been inspired by your energy. But it's probably best to first talk a bit about your story behind this and how you've actually reached this point. When were the first signs that you weren't feeling right, as it were? Slowly but surely, I, I'd slipped into a state of depression. It's been retrospectively diagnosed. I say retrospectively because we, I only actually spoke to a professional after I'd gone through it. And once I got into that state of mind, it became increasingly difficult to actually perceive a way out. But early doors, as with anyone, when these feelings, the onset of these feelings starts to, to sort of show themselves, there's a lot that we can do, even though it might seem difficult, it might seem inconvenient, or it might seem like the less comfortable thing to do, there's a lot that we can do to nip these feelings in the bud and bring ourselves back to some sort of some sort of baseline. Because I, I very much view mental health as a sliding scale from healthy to unhealthy. Most of us will spend our life somewhere in the middle. We'll slide one direction or the other. Some of us are more volatile. I view myself as quite volatile which means I need to be conscious that whilst I might experience brilliant highs on the side of healthy with my mental health when I've just finished a big project or I've managed to raise X amount of money with a big charity campaign or I've completed a big endurance challenge, you can't stay there. And yeah. I'll probably slip back the other direction too, but that's fine as long as I'm equipped with the tools to be able to bring myself back to that baseline. And then the flip side of that is for those of us that aren't as volatile and spend most of our time bang in the middle where we are mentally healthy, or at the very least stable, we are well equipped to help those around us that might not be so stable. So in practical terms, my family and those around me and the friends that I did have could have helped me. And there was a support network there, there was a love and support mechanism around me that I chose not to access because of my perception of masculinity. And so ultimately, what, yeah, the feelings were there. Of, what sort of physical um, things were you noticing? So for the first year, I was still very much in the camp that mental health was a figment of the imagination of, frankly, a, a weak mindset. And that depression was a convenient excuse or a label people, people could attach to not working hard or avoiding responsibility. Mm. So as, you, as you've noted, the physical manifestations of the way that I was feeling were ultimately the things that made me realize, oh, you're wrong. This is very much real and you're very much suffering. So it was early 2016 when I really started to feel like, sorry, uh, yeah, and that was early 2016 when I was um, really started to feel like things were going downhill and I was getting split in half by weights that I should be able to do with my eyes closed at the gym. I wasn't sleeping properly. If I did sleep, I could sleep for like 18 hours through alarms and miss everything. And I couldn't eat, my appetite was gone, I was craving certain foods that I normally wouldn't eat because I was normally very regimented with all these things around my, my training. And it was just this feeling of drudgery and slowness and sluggishness that came with it. And 
that then meant that the things that I had used as coping mechanisms throughout my depression were no longer viable because I was being physically affected and that's when things really started to spiral out of control for me. So the physical manifestation was ultimately a, a real overwhelming lack of energy for things, a lack of actual power when it came mm. to physical activity, a really, really interrupted sleeping pattern, a really interrupted appetite and with that, the inner voice that came with, oh, you, why, are you not, why are you not eating enough? Why are you not doing well enough at the gym? All these critical things that I was really perpetuating at the time. So the physical symptoms were what really, really made clear to me that mental health was very much a real thing. I was very much suffering with depression and that the reality of my situation was something that previously I would have argued didn't even exist. So um, this is one of the questions that we've had sent in from somebody here at Arnold Clark. What was the turning point for you? Uh, when did you think I need this isn't right. What was, the, what was the lowest point where you thought, I need, to, I need to turn my life around? So just to bridge the gap between the turning point and ultimately uh, sort of the, the peak of desperation, shall we say, just to flag that I'm going to discuss the notion of suicide here for anyone listening who might be uncomfortable, but that period where the physical symptoms start to manifest themselves, that took away the things that were allowing me to continue to suffer, if that makes sense which in a twisted way is a good thing, but in a very twisted way is a bad thing because my training gave me an output that my social interaction and my university course wasn't giving me. Mm -hmm. So it allowed me to feel miserable for longer, but also allowed me a bit of an escape from quite a desperate state of mind. So I, I, I still don't know today how I view that because on the one hand, training was my escape from the way I was feeling, but also allowed me to suffer much longer, which I wouldn't wish upon anyone. So things got to the point where I remember there was a real turning point before the, the sort of peak of my depression where I remember a full week, Sunday to Sunday had gone by where I hadn't had a conversation with a human being, a meaningful conversation with a human being other than a Tesco cashier or a barista or something in an entire week. Full week had gone by, no interaction. Everything had been transactional or formal. And the loneliness that I felt then was so, so intense that it really, really made me feel as if I'd gone too far and there was no way of me bringing this back because rather than then thinking, oh, things are so desperate, I need to speak to the, mm. the love and support that I have around me, it made me feel so exposed, so vulnerable, so much of a letdown within my own parameters, my own definition, that if I revealed to those people how I was feeling, they'd feel about me the way that I felt about me, which I couldn't let happen because that would really let down expectations. So the, it's a bit blurry around that period of time in terms of my thought processes and the days and, and everything, but ultimately early May of 2016, it got to the point where I decided that I, I just couldn't take it anymore. I was, I was pacing up and down my room. I, was just, I just saw no way out of the situation I was in other than trying to silence the, the white noise inside my head and took the decision to attempt suicide. I say attempt, fortunately, obviously, as I've, I've come out the other side, but coming out the other side, the, the, the method was, it had left me very intoxicated. Um, and for the first four to six hours of coming around consciously, I couldn't really move my body very well. I couldn't move my body at all, actually. So I could see, I could open my eyes, I could think, but I couldn't move. I couldn't crawl into bed, I couldn't do anything. And 
that was the most desperate and exposed I've ever felt from a internal point of view personally, because I, I heard footsteps outside the door and they had no idea, one, that I'd been feeling the way that I had, and two, that it had got to this point. So in that moment, I managed to come to the conclusion that this was a desperate situation. I did have to take active steps to try and fix it. But it still didn't jump out at me that I need to find love and support from those around me because of my perception of masculinity, my perception of how mental health was to be perceived in the world that we lived in at the time. So the turning point really came with a WhatsApp message from a friend of mine called Andy based in Edinburgh who said, I'm getting a puppy from this litter next week, you in. And I think he was just telling me that he was getting a puppy and being like, haha, you're not. Mm -hmm. But as soon as I received that message, in the back of my mind, I heard structure, routine, stability, a reason to get out of bed in the morning, and another heartbeat ultimately because I was just so existentially lonely and a week later I'd borrowed some money from Andy because the student budget doesn't buy you French Bulldogs you won't be surprised to hear <laughs> and I had a 14 week old French Bulldog on the train back down towards Newcastle and the northeast with me and then the following day it, it just it, it was enough of a distraction for me to to kind of not not forget about but for one moment put aside the reality and the desperation. You had of the situa- to look after something else. Yeah, think but about that, something else first. Yeah, that's it. That's it. And ultimately, it was it was a it was a structure and a routine, and it was it was it was it was placing myself within another pattern. And it's important to mention that because I, ultimately, I'm not arguing that the solu- the solution is a 14 week old French bulldog. But what I did was, I took my negative pattern of behaviour and reframed it into a better one. And what that was, was structure, routine, habits, social interaction, um, taking care of something else, growing something, building something, feeling like I'm contributing to something, all the things that I've been missing for the past two years. Odie was just the manifestation of that, or the pig dog, as he's now lovingly known. He doesn't really get called Odie anymore, just the pig. And most importantly, in the first week of having him, I'd have him at the park and he, w- he wouldn't even walk on concrete, so I knew he wasn't going to run away. So he was just kicking about on the park um, without a lead on because he was so scared of everything that I knew he wouldn't go away. But I was having conversations with strangers about him. Oh, how's his toilet training going? All these little things. And it wasn't psychoanalysis. It wasn't I was speaking to people about my mental health. It was just speaking to people. Yeah. And that built my confidence enough over time because then I was walking the city centre and having conversations. Oh, my hairdresser's got one of these. They're so funny, all this stuff. And it was just brick brick by brick, step by step, I slowly started to reintegrate into society. And that gave me enough confidence to start to engage socially a little bit more. I actually got through my exams that year and managed to leave with the grade that I'd always wanted, which was a 2-1. And having Odie gave me the structure and the routine back to be able to actually learn and study again, whereas previously there was not a chance I was going to be able to do it. So in the short... The shortness of the turnaround was remarkable, given how long I'd struggled and given how long it had taken me to get to that turning point. But ultimately, if we were to distill down what that turning point was, it was realising the reality of my situation, which I didn't need to get to the situation I was in to do so. Very important to mention. I didn't need to get to rock bottom to start climbing back up. That's, that's really important to mention. It was my stubbornness that got me there. But once I realised the reality of my situation, next step was actually assessing the structures and the way that I live my life and then trying to pull back, push forward and, and create new ones so that I could have small wins each and every day. And then thirdly, it was a case of 
having more positive conversations and building those bricks step by step and ultimately getting comfortable enough to talk about how I was feeling because there was a moment I was walking out in Jesmond Dean in Newcastle, if anyone knows it, and I just said, oh, we're going to be okay, aren't we, pig? And as I said it, I almost reached out into the air to grab the words and shove them back down my throat and looked around as if had anyone heard me. Oh, no, because I felt exposed. But what I'd done is I'd taken that inner voice and made it an outer voice. And that was the acknowledgement, oh, right, mm -hmm. you're not okay. And because it was out in the world. So that moment there doesn't need to come walking a dog. It doesn't need to come in the northeast of England. It doesn't mm. need to. It, the, the, my situation was purely an example of actually outwardly sharing how I was feeling and the impact that then had and the steps that followed ultimately allowed me to get to a place where I was just happy to be happy for the following two years before I started to slip back towards depression and actually really unpacked the inner workings of why I was in this position and how I could equip myself with the tools to avoid this moving forwards. So after keeping yourself to yourself and not discussing any of your feelings with anybody, how did your family react to the, the sudden suddenly saying this has all happened and them being oblivious to it? So I, it's important to mention that I did a very, very consciously good job of making them oblivious to it. It wasn't like it was a neglectful, oh, we're not paying attention to what's going on in Fergus's life, but with my friends and with my family, I did everything I could to maintain a sense of composure and present myself as somebody who was fine. Mm. Because if I was fine, they wouldn't ask questions. If they didn't ask questions, it wouldn't make me think about how I was really feeling. And I, I hid behind this mask for, for a long time. And... Ultimately, again, goes back to goes back to Odie. My mum had always said if we got a dog, she'd be the one that ended up walking it. She was probably right when we were younger, to be quite honest. Fair play, mum. But she didn't want a dog. Yeah. And one Christmas, I turned up with a dog, and the elephant or French bulldog in the room had to be addressed. And it did just seem to them like I just disobeyed. And you'd done something flippant yeah, yeah, rather yeah. than it being a life-saving measure for you. Yeah, so yeah. It, it seemed insulting to them because they'd said over and over again that I couldn't do this and here I was having done it. So it did seem very disrespectful that I was staying with them for Christmas and all these things. So from their point of view, I completely understand it. But to tell the truth and to actually alleviate the sort of stress and anxiety of the situation for all involved because a confrontational why have you done this to us around Christmas time? Something I think we all want to avoid, but I had to then, I, not, I hadn't planned to tell them, but the, the situation was presented whereby it had to be addressed. And as I shared the reason why Odie was there, you could see they both defaulted to almost wanting, wanting me to have just disobeyed them and just to have been mm. a bit rude and inconsiderate because that was the easier. Yeah the easier reality but then once we sort of got over that and actually made clear that this was the reason that he was here i felt a lot better there was obviously a lot of emotions flying around but then they started to piece together working backwards a few things i'd said and the bigger picture and all these things and it made sense to them but the immediate thing was that they they were perplexed as to why i hadn't come to them for for more formal help or why i hadn't spent more time at home or all these things and that's where I had to kind of explain and, and actually confront a little bit more those questions because again I'd been doing everything I could to avoid these questions internally 
out of not wanting to let down my perception of I myself masculine-wise. something else that you'd said to me when we'd been chatting before was you felt guilty about the way you're feeling because you had such a charmed life really you had a supportive family you had there was no money worries with your parents being there to to back you up you know you, it, apart from usual student worries it was it was a really good life you've been given all the best chances and it it is some people feel that they they don't have that right to feel depressed when there are people worse off than them that was a really big thing for me, really big thing. I mean, I could sit here and list all the, the privileges that I have in life that I'm very aware of, but ultimately, I, I, at university, I can, remember, I can remember conversations in my head where I was just, it was like, if, if I could have got out of my body and kicked myself repeatedly in the ribs, like, what are you doing? I would have done, because that was the way I felt psychologically. And ultimately, as you've said, I had a roof over my head. I was at a great university. I was lucky to have, I mean, we could, we could extrapolate yeah. this as much as we want. I had all my limbs. I'd grown yeah. up in a great city. I'd, I'd, my parents were together. I had a brother that I've never fallen out with. All these things. So it's like, why do you feel this way? There's people so much worse off than you. How can you be so pathetic? How can you be so weak? Because they're getting through it and you're not. What is wrong with you? That sort of narrative. And that guilt is something that people I've spoken to since, everybody feels. Everybody feels. It, it's kind of reverse imposter syndrome. It's kind of a... I'm fortunate enough in life to be in the position I'm, that I'm in, therefore I shouldn't feel this way. But ultimately, mm. as human beings, we need fulfillment, we need social interactions, there's lots of things that we need that if we're missing, then we can slowly slip towards that unhealthy side of mental health, as I just discussed before. And the, the majority of how we spend our life is at work or with our family or doing things that, let's say, hobbies. And there's not much, there's not a huge amount of time out with all those things. So if your work isn't fulfilling, and you're just going through the motions with your hobbies because they're what, you're, what you've always done. Family life's challenging because there's lots to juggle, there's lots of things going on, there might be cost of living concerns, whatever it is, then you don't have any, you don't have any spaces where you can actually reflect on how you're truly feeling and why you're doing the things that you're doing. And all of a sudden, that everything you're doing in your life is not giving you the things that as human beings we, we need. So whether you're a billionaire or whether you are living the simplest life imaginable, Ultimately, we all tick in the same way. The way that we sort of satisfy our human requirements is very different. But whatever standing in life, we can fail to satisfy them in, in one way or another. And that's what I've learned recently is that whenever I feel a way that I do, it is a consequence of the way that I'm living my life within my context. Mm -hmm. And I don't compare it to, to anyone else because it's important to understand that comparison will just make things more complicated because the problem that I was experiencing, the way that I was feeling, was a result of my own circumstances, which is empowering because it means that I am the one that has the power to change my own circumstances rather than looking at somebody else and thinking, oh, if I could only replicate what they're doing, then I'd be happy because that's not the case. So let's talk about if anybody's sort of identifying with, with some of the things that you're saying here. The you, we'll talk about some of your um, athletic challenges. You're a hybrid athlete. What does tell us? What's hybrid athlete? So it's it's a bit of a marketing term, to be quite honest. I'll hold my hands up, but it's it's more a case of I practice strength and endurance disciplines concurrently uh -huh. at, at quite a high level in that space. But I do that because I enjoy them. I enjoy the demand of weightlifting. I, I my background's in powerlifting. I've done that internationally, so that's one rep max of squat, bench, and deadlift. So that is top end mm. maximal strength. But as a result of my charity challenges, I discovered how much I enjoyed endurance, 
speed work, sort of cardiovascular demand. And the balance of the really, really hard sort of fight or flight fight that comes from lifting balanced with the really flight, sort of long, drawn out, reflective demand of endurance training gives me a broad perspective. And ultimately it means I'm very balanced as an athlete and I enjoy everything from swimming locker, locker and end to end like I've done recently or... I mean, the weekend just gone. I've done I was going to say, you're <laughs> sitting, saying here saying it's all very balanced, but you are slightly broken after yes, having done yes. the challenge at the weekend. Yeah, double so Ironman. So a double extreme Ironman distance triathlon. So it was a 7.6k swim, a 373k bike and an 84.4k run in Snowdonia. So there was a stupid amount of elevation to contend with as well. And the weather that came with it on Sunday afternoon and evening, which was brutal. I mean, it was called the, the Brutal Extreme Triathlon, so oh. I, the clue isn't the name. But I, I did that in 40 hours and 53 minutes with 15 minutes of sleep. So if my voice sounds a bit hoarse, for, for, for anyone <laughs> that was at the People Conference thinking, he sounds a little, he's got a deeper voice than I remember, then there's a reason why. But ultimately, the hybrid thing is, it, it means that I get to enjoy, I get to do all of the things that I enjoy rather than put myself into a box. Right which can be quite restrictive because when I was just a powerlifter, I would not play golf with my friends on a weekend. I enjoy playing golf. Scotland's a brilliant place to play golf, but I wouldn't play golf because on Monday I had heavy squats and I didn't want 12,000 steps of golf in my legs. Uh -huh. So it's like putting myself in a box prevented me from doing the things that I enjoyed. Whereas now, accepting that I'm not gonna be the best at any one of the things that I do, but as long as I enjoy them, as long as I'm making progress in them simultaneously, it doesn't matter. I'm not, I'm not racing against anyone. So the simple definition is strength sports and endurance sports, endurance sports at the same time. So um, people, we're, we're looking to how we can translate this. People making the best of their own life, getting their mental health in tip-top condition. What are the anchors? I know you, this is something you've thought through quite carefully. It's something that you're working with, with Arnold Clark talking about. What are the anchors that you have that you use to maintain a healthy life that are replicable? <laughs> yes, so, so definition of terms, an anchor for me is something that, that weighs me down. And by that, I mean, keeps me in the place that I wanna be, because obviously weighing you down metaphorically can have mm -hmm. negative connotations. But the, the anchors that keep me keep me weighed down and keep me in the same place, keep me in control, I think it's important to mention, are things like sleep, nutrition, so social interactions, family interactions, how I spend my weekends, my decisions around alcohol, my the time I devote to reading, how I exercise, how much time I spend outdoors. There's lots of things that are specific to me, but I think universally, sleep, nutrition, decisions around alcohol, social interactions, and the how much fulfillment we get from work mm -hmm. are, are sort of the, the five that I'll focus on that I believe are universally applicable within their own application to the individual. So you five aside football on a Wednesday night for somebody could be a real anchor for them. It's not for me, but, mm -hmm. I, so, so, but that's perfectly okay because the mechanism is the same. It's something that's predictable, it's something that's social, it's something that's there, it's something you look forward to and it's a part of your week that can keep you weighed down and in control mm. of the way that you're feeling. So what I'd encourage everybody to do in general terms is, is sit down and really map out category by category, what are the things that are a part of my life? What are the things that are important to me? And how do I, what's my perception of them? Where do, where do they fit within, within the context of my week, my month, whatever it is? How can I be better at them? How can I make smaller decisions that actually improve my quality of sleep, improve 
whether I have four pints with my friends on a Saturday or, or two pints with my friends on a Saturday mm. because I know that on a Monday, if I have four, I'll feel a bit groggy. And that means the rest of the week, I might not get as full, much fulfillment from work. It's this sort of narrative and these sort of questions. So anchors wise, I think first and foremost, look at your sleep pattern, look at what you're eating, look at how you're exercising, look at how much time you're spending outdoors and look at how you're defining success within your role at Arnold Clark look at the anchors around that how can you weigh yourself down and keep yourself more in control more predictable and then find a an almost equilibrium across the week because if you're if one weekend you sleep really badly you got a really stressful work week that means on on a weekend you kind of just want to take time off and sit in front of the tv and oh, a couple more episodes i'm not gonna mm. not gonna sleep but maybe i'll get a takeaway i'll have a couple of beers i'm not gonna walk the dog first thing in the morning because i'll do it in the evening and then you half ask that because you're just in this sort of mm. psychological slump. You're going to come into Monday and you're going to be on the back foot. And then your nutrition the rest of the week might be a bit off. Your sleeping pattern might be a bit off. Your social interactions might be a bit snappy, might be a bit groggy and slow. That might mean that you then miss your Wednesday night five-a-side football, for example. You might come to Thursday and then you're thinking, oh, I can't be bothered doing that last bit of work that I need done by Friday. I wonder if I can maybe just, just do it do the bare minimum and then just hand it in and then I can, I can reset Monday. But what you've done in that process is you've, you've scaled back on so many things that underpin who you are and how you operate week by week. And the net effect of that is going to be a really quite negative headspace. And you can see with the example I gave there how quickly those mm. things can spiral and topple. So. And we're all guilty of it. Oh, 100%. Because I know that when we'd spoken, you said you had had a shocking few months where you'd been burning the candle at both ends, trying to do everything, and you needed to just redefine what your, your time slots yeah. were for everything. I know something um, that a lot of people will be wondering is if they're feeling a bit down, they're not feeling 100%, it doesn't have to be as severe as depression but they they just know that they're not firing on all cylinders and if they put in place these anchors and map out their time a bit more like you say how long before you do you think that you start to see improvements in the way you feel so there's there's a, there's a research backed equation here and then there's a a sort of practical and anecdotally experienced point of view so i think from anecdotally speaking, I think if you do the same, if, if you practice and do the repetitions mm -hmm. of something for two weeks, you will start to see a change. Whether that change is the end goal or whether it's just the beginning of a change, you'll start to notice something. From a scientific point of view, around the sort of 60 to 90 day mark is where a habit will truly stick and it'll be difficult for you to abandon it. But from my point of view, if you repeatedly practice something for two weeks, it does, but the, the important thing to mention, it doesn't need to be everything all at once. It can simply be, right, I'm feeling really tired day to day. Let's look at my sleeping pattern. Okay, I'm getting up at a different time every morning, which is gonna confuse my body biologically. If anyone's interested in learning a bit more about that, just search circadian rhythm online. It's the biological rhythm that underpins why we wake up and go to sleep at the time that we do, why we're better at some things at certain times of the day, why we're warmer at some times of the day, all, all that intricate stuff. But the bottom line is if you can nail your sleeping pattern, or improve your sleeping pattern even by 10%, that will have a huge impact. So to contextualize that, there's a thing in, in, in sort of professional psychology called the Hamilton scale. And it's a, a sort of quantitative measure for measuring whether somebody is depressed or not. And it's a, it's a score where you will tot up through a series of questions and you will either be depressed or you will not be. It's still practiced and used today. It's not, it's not the only thing that's used, but it's one of many measurements that can be used. And on the Hamilton scale, interestingly, 
fixing a negative sleeping pattern has more of an impact in terms of bringing somebody out of depression or if it's a bad one towards depression than antidepressants will. So antidepressants are on average one or two points, whereas a more positive sleeping pattern can be four to six points. So the impact, the impact that that can have on your mental health and your well-being, and then the knock-on effect of you going into each energy with more, more passion, more energy to, to take the steps to fix these things, make better decisions around food, make better decisions around your workflow, make better decisions about what you say yes to and what you say no to. So I think, practically speaking, if somebody's feeling that they're not firing on all cylinders, then assess what they're doing on a week-by-week -week basis and try to isolate which of the things that they think are making them feel a bit more negative. If that isn't as clear, then just choose a habit to practice or choose something that they can add to what they're doing to give them a sense that they're winning each and every day. Because I think it's easy week by week to feel that we are just going through the motions and that doesn't give us the, the rewards that we're looking for as a, as, a, as a human being. So if we can feel that we've won the day in a specific way, that might be to-do lists. You might get up every morning or the night before and say, right, tomorrow's priorities are one, two, three. Those are the priorities. That's the, I, th I think any more than three is too many, personally, for anyone. Because if you've got more than three priorities, then it's going to get convoluted and it's going to get confusing. You'll get to the end of the day and feel yeah. like you haven't done enough. So map out what your priorities are on a day-by-day -day basis. And then if you get to the end of the day and you've, you've boxed off those things, then it's been a success. But you can easily ruin that by writing down 60 things on a to-do list and then you get to the end of the day and you've got 52 left and you think oh barely made a dent in yeah. it what am I going to do failed yeah, yeah yeah exactly it's it's the exact same mechanism that I used when I was younger for def like every day if I wasn't moving forwards towards my hypothetical future I was a failure because mm -hmm. I wasn't doing everything I could but life is infinitely more complex than that we have social interactions and relationships to, to sort of cultivate so I think assess where you are map out a very, very simple, short-term, one-thing-focused improvement you can make day-to-day. -day. Stick with it for two weeks. If it hasn't had any impact and you don't feel any better, then try something else. Because I'm, I'm not going to say that everybody just needs to fix their sleeping pattern. That would be naive. But let's not forget as well that we're all individuals and we all have different challenges. So that's why it's really important to try and sit down, even if it's with somebody, with a partner, the colleague even, I know the support mechanisms at Arnold Clark are world class, so... Well, that's, yeah. Yeah, that's one of the questions we've got here. Um, we, should, we should also mention that Arnold Clark have been working with Sam H to develop a, a mental health activity that's going to be coming to branches to help encourage more conversations um, about mental health. But one of the questions um, that we've got sent in from somebody here is, um, what advice would you give to managers to support their employees or learn more about mental health? Because I know people are concerned about having that conversation with people who they work with and and as a as an um, a manager you you want to do the right thing as well and you don't want to say something that is potentially damaging correct correct and there is the the i don't want to say rat race because there's not a rat race culture at Arnold clock but the climbing the ring of the ladder mentality that goes mm. with the working world in the western yeah. world which is, if I say X, will that affect Y when it comes to promotion, when it comes to how I'm perceived within an organisation? And that's a perfectly natural fear to have. However, I think the same applies to parents. If you are perceived as an authority figure by the person below you on that, on that hypothetical ladder I've just referred to, then 
it's going to be very difficult for that person to come to you and share how they're feeling, even if you are very openly saying, you can talk to me about this, you can talk to me about that, because the layer of authority is going to supersede the comfort that that person feels in sharing it. So I think the most important thing that managers can do is be honest with themselves and more importantly be honest with the people that report to them. Because if the manager is perceived as somebody who feels the same way I do and is affected in the same way that I am by things, then it humanizes them a lot more. And that means that the people that report to you are going to be much more comfortable sharing how they feel because they feel that you're going to be able to empathize, understand and give practical steps to move forwards with. Whereas if, if, if you're purely perceived as an authority figure, then it's going to be very difficult for that person to come to you in confidence and, and have an open conversation rather than one that feels formal. And I think the more that the conversation can be humanised, the more it can feed into the productivity of a team, the more it can feed into the, the sort of conversations going on with the team. And, and ultimately, the more, the more people can look at their KPIs and actually think, well, how can I get here in a way that's going to make me feel most fulfilled rather than just doing the job? Because the culture here is very much uh, do, do your job in the best way that you can as an, as an individual. And I think from a management point of view, it's the same in all organisations. For all of these fantastic offerings available through um, Space and, and Ben and, and everything available within the organisation, there still needs to be a confidence person to person that they can share it with the, the man or woman that they're standing beside. Because that will cultivate a culture that means people can be open and honest and there's not going to be a hierarchy of who am I happy talking to this about so if you as a manager have ever felt oh, I don't want to I don't want to seem I don't want to seem stressed in front of my employees because it'll make them see me as incompetent or like I can't manage it let them see that because that'll make them realize that you you are like them and that you might be able to people empathize. like seeing fallibility yeah, in, yeah. in in uh, in fellow fellow workers that uh, there's i know that um the think employee team are they're constantly developing new online and face-to-face training and then there's also managers toolkits and lots of resources on space as well and of course the people team are always available and ready to help another question that we've um had in there's there's two questions which i think we could probably tie in together what was the most important thing that you've learned about your mental health and how have you grown as a person uh most important thing is honesty and that goes through two levels one is myself and two is everyone else so i am very emotionally self-aware which is a trained skill might i add that's come from the experience that I've had but more importantly constantly asking the right questions over time and constantly doing the reps to analyze how does something make me feel what should I therefore do and then secondly is with everyone else and that I'd happily walk down the nearest pub social club whatever's nearby and happily tell the first person I meet everything that I've shared with you today because I've managed to get to the point where I understand it's a part of who I am it's a part of who we are as a species and Ultimately, the more self-aware I can become, the better equipped I am to weather the storms that get chucked at me. So how do I react to confrontation? How do I react to when there's some really negative news? How do I react to when an invoice isn't paid on time and it means that I can't pay staff? or All these things that get chucked at us on a day-to-day basis that I need to deal with, it means that through that self-awareness and development and honesty, I can always look at things objectively and neutrally and say, well, okay, what is the situation? What can I do? 
if there isn't very much, then I don't sit there and catastrophize. But that's mm -hmm. something that I've trained myself to do. But that's really tough not to really catastrophize tough. Yeah, yeah. everything. Yeah, really tough. Speaking as somebody yeah. who can do it very, very easily, it is. It's a, it's a, it's a tough skill. It's, pr it's practice, and I think it's where, it's where I, I believe once people have got to a position where they're comfortable day to day in understanding their mental mm -hmm. health, that's where they should start to explore things that challenge it. So that's why for me the endurance training has been so valuable yeah. because it puts me in really compromised positions where I have to wrestle with myself emotionally and not catastrophize. The weekend, for example, my electric gears on my bike failed 44 minutes into what was going to be a 17-hour bike ride. I spent one hour on the side of the road without phone signal, not knowing when I was going to come and get my spare bike given to me, catastrophizing that all the work, everything that had been gone, in, that had gone into this, all the travel, all the people, all the money, was going to go down the drain because of one uncontrollable error. But ultimately, I just sat there and tried to keep that emotional yeah. eruption at bay by having an inner dialogue. And it then meant that I could approach the next steps more practically and in a clearer state of mind. But I think this is where this is where exercise, it sounds a bit trite because I'm sure we've all seen Facebook ads or some things where, oh, fitness training, exercise can change your life. But it really can because it's a... It's a, it's a metric system which means that if you do something, you have won that day. If you make progress the following week, you have won that week. And it's self-driven. Everything is earned. Every kilometre walked is earned by you through your own legs mm -hmm. and your own turning over of your feet. And it's completely relative to the individual. I'm not saying everybody needs to go out and do ultra-endurance events. I'm just saying that some structure and willing discomfort something that can really force you to reflect on these things and can help you understand and be honest with yourself because it puts you in a state of mind where you have to mm -hmm. you have to be comfortable with your own thoughts and it means that when things get thrown at us that are uncontrollable which they will global pandemic we've just come out of mm -hmm. there's infinite things going on in the world that are difficult to process there's the cost of living crisis where we don't know what's going to happen next and ultimately doing what we can in the situation that we have available to us and being honest with where we are rather than just hoping for something to happen I think is a practical thing to do because it one empowers us to be a bit more in control and we feel like we can we can really take stock of where we are a bit more but more importantly it will develop us for when the next thing comes along but being honest with yourself first and foremost and then being honest with those around you I think is very important and I think as a culture having these conversations internally day to day over lunch in gaps between sales showings, whatever it might be, is valuable because it, again, as you said, it shows the infallibility of the person next to you. And it shows that ultimately we're all, we're all making this up as we go along. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it just gives us, it gives us that sense of, right, okay, there's things that I can do about this. And that means that it's easier to not catastrophize because the more that we see the result of, okay, if I take control and do X, oh, that leads to Y. And that's where I think having things built into our week where we can say, I'm going to be here at this time to do this thing and it will give me this is good. Because the more that we experience that, the more confidence it gives us that if we build structures like that into our day to day life, we can take reward from it, whatever that may be. Uh, finally, I, I know if anybody's interested in, in listening to more of your story and your perspective on things, you have your podcast, The Modern Mind. You've interviewed some absolutely incredible characters there. Um, briefly, have you ever had a light bulb moment where you've been sitting interviewing somebody and they've said something and you've gone, oh my goodness, that that's it? I've never thought of it like that. Or oh, that's a brilliant way of seeing things. 
Yeah, so it was uh, three weeks ago with a chap called Simon Jeffries, who's ex-Special Forces. He was with the Special Boat Service and has led a, a, a decorated career and is now a, a sort of mindset coach focused on taking the lessons he's gathered from the Special Forces and applying them to civilian life. And at the end of the day, they are doing a job. They are looking at things as neutrally and simply as they possibly can and equipping themselves with the tools to react when situations go very aggressively wrong, mm -hmm. which they do. That's what they're employed to do. And I shared with him that I'd been losing the joy from the things that give me joy on a day-to-day -day basis because there was no gap. So I'm fortunate enough that everything I do on a day-to-day -day basis I've really enjoyed doing, but recently around training for Double Ironman, for example, there's just been so much all at once. It's been very hard to juggle, it's been very hard to get right, and whilst I'm enjoying everything I do, it's foot to the floor on the accelerator mm -hmm. at all times, which, as we know in the car industry, that will ruin an engine very quickly. Luckily, Arnold Clark has a fantastic service department. <laughs> Good thing these ones are going uh, out with just the intranet, isn't it, with that sales pitch. But I explained to him how I'd been feeling, and he helped me understand that ultimately it wasn't the... The, the, the trap I'd fallen into was that just because I enjoy something doesn't mean it's not draining. And just because things are giving me reward doesn't mean that I can keep my foot to the floor at all times. So we basically just kind of stripped back what position I was in, and and understood that whilst training for me used to be my escape from the day job, because I've only been sort of doing, I, I was working full time for somebody else until March 2021. So training for me at the weekends was my sort of reflective personal time, whereas now it's part of the job. And I've naively not realized that that is now work. So I'm not giving myself any time week to week to just switch off to just be present in the situation as I used to be with the training because there were little things happening recently like I was walking the dog and I found myself doing calculations in my head for sort of a commercial project I had coming up and I was like, what are you doing? How, how is your brain taking you here? This is so frustrating because it was annoying me that one, I wasn't being able to enjoy the time that I was spending with my fiance and the dogs. Two, I, I've made a real effort to switch off here and my brain isn't letting me. So I felt like I lost control and three, what, why, why is something like this having such an overbearing effect on you that you can't even switch off? So he, he helped me understand the reality of my day-to-day -day life and that ultimately, even if we enjoy everything, it's very important to build in complete downtime. And by downtime, I mean doing very low demand, low stress activities. And I think that's where, that's where in the Western world where we're being encouraged through social media, whatever it is perceptively, we've got to be on all the time it's important that we're not. And I've fallen into that trap personally recently. And we need to consciously look at what we're doing on a week by week basis and block in and build in some time to do very little because it's regenerative. It's, it's, mm -hmm. it's, like, a, it's like conscious sleep in many ways. So that was a real light bulb, light bulb moment for me. And secondly was actually with Johan Hari around focus. And I think this is maybe something that a lot of employees can maybe take away because there's, there's a variety of tasks that everybody's got to deal with. But Johan Hari's written a book called Stolen Focus, where he, he went over to um, Charlestown over in, in, in the US and basically went, he was a digital nomad for a period of time and explored why we have lost our focus in the Western world so drastically. And there's the obvious answers like 
how quickly we want to consume content on the internet and how readily available everything is. Amazon Prime, there's even afternoon delivery services mm. these days and things. And it, we're just this very fast-paced lifestyle, which feeds into what I've just said around making sure that we build in time to move away from it. But creating structures around work, around focus, so that you can avoid the white noise that's been created for us. So it's things like leaving your phone in another room, making sure that you've, you've turned off notifications, you've blocked teams or whatever it might be. Obviously, you've got to work these things around the practical structures yeah. that we've all got, but when you have an opportunity to take the power that you have to not be distracted, try and build in structures and work in the habits, because as I've said, two weeks of working these habits in, trial and error, you'll then start to see the rewards. And for me, it's things like on Mondays, I, I leave my phones in, in separate rooms and I make sure that I've got classical music in just because it really focuses me into one task. Mondays for me are one task and my productivity for the rest of the week, the way that I feel, my stress is all skyrocketed because I feel like I've got a much tighter grip on things. Um, but there's countless, there's countless light bulb moments in there. there that, that's, why, that's why I'd encourage people to listen to podcasts because it's a very, it's a very interesting way of exploring what a person's perspective is, balanced with the other person's perspective, and then you're sitting there framing it within your own life. And whilst it's ultimately just two people having a conversation that you're listening into, ultimately, as human beings, all we're doing is having conversations and occasionally listening into it anyway. Well, Fergus, thank you so much for joining us today. And I hope um, a few of the things that you said, if they've resonated with people, then hopefully you've given them some, some ideas and some some pointers to, to think about. Uh, just a reminder that if we have touched on issues today that have affected you, then um, on space you can find out how to access AXA and Ben, who both offer counselling services. There's also Silver Cloud, which is a digital mental health platform that you can work through at your own pace. And there's also life coaching from Ben if you'd like some one-to-one -one support. You can also reach out to the people team for support. And for more day-to-day -day mental health maintenance, we've got relaxation and meditation videos on ACE too. Well, thanks for listening. And once again, thanks to Fergus Crawley for sharing his story with us. Until next time here on AC Live, the podcast, goodbye. Thank you. Thank you.